0: I'm Jesse Thorne. When you're a metal god, like Rob Halford is, and you're going to make a holiday album like Rob Halford has now several times, it's important that the songs are, you know, arranged to sound like metal songs. The frontman of Judas Priest has a reputation to
1: keep. But just as important, song selection. We were not going to do Rudolph the red Nose Reindeer or Foster <laughs> the Snowman. That would have been ridiculous. We wanted to make a, we wanted to make a pretty serious record, quite frankly.
0: For MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. On this week's Bullseye Holiday Special, more with the legend Rob Halford, the most delightful man in metal, plus Mickey Dolans from The Monkees and much more. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're celebrating the holidays this week, and who better to kick things off to get us into that holiday spirit than Rob Halford? If you have a computer in front of you, here's something fun you can do. Go to Wikipedia, search for the phrase metal god. You know, like the god of heavy metal. And as soon as you hit enter, you will not be transported to the page for Ozzy Osbourne or Lemmy or Eddie Van Halen. Because there is only one true metal god. At least according to Wikipedia. That's Rob Halford, the lead singer of Judas Priest. Honestly that's about all the introduction we need. We're going to listen back to my 2009 conversation with Rob, because back then, Rob had just released his first ever heavy metal holiday record. He called it Halford 3, Winter Songs. Since then, he's released another holiday album, 2019's Celestial. But before we go to the interview, let's kick things off with a certified Rob Halford holiday classic, his take on We Three Kings. born in 1951, which means that um, when you were finishing high school and, and you know, you were in your late teens, it was just as uh, heavy rock music was emerging from uh, uh, early rock and psychedelic rock. Um, what was the music that you heard that made you think, I like rock and I want it to be
1: loud and hard? Well, it- Actually, Jesse, it was even before that because I can remember my my Aunt Pat giving me an old record player that she wanted to get rid of, and it was still in pretty good working order. So I think I was probably, what, 10 or 11 when she gave me this uh, record player, and I lifted the lid, and there was a bunch of 45s in the singles in uh, in the deck. And it was Little Richard, Bill Haley and the Comets, and Elvis Presley and I played them all back to back and even at that age at that moment it was my god this is it this is it this is me this is electric this is contacting me in in such a such a strong personal way you know something's going on here why why is it making me feel this way i just felt alive and felt genuinely excited and and so even from that point before as i grew you know slightly beyond my teenage years um, it was already in my system, so yeah, you know, obviously Hendrix, uh, the Yardbirds, uh, Cream, King Crimson, early Led Zeppelin, early Deep Purple, the Who—all of these people um, were the ones that I was listening to.
0: The first couple of albums that uh, Judas Priest made um, it didn't have any huge hits on them, and um, it, it must have been a—it must have been a bit of a struggle to continue. Uh, to be working as a musician, um, did you feel confident that that this was going to become something?
1: Yes, I think self belief is absolutely vital. Uh, no matter what you do in life, self belief doesn't matter what you're going to do. You, you've got to have that. You've got to have that inner drive, you know. And particularly in the entertainment business, and I, and I say that rather than the heavy metal business or the rock and roll business, because it is, that's what we do. You know, um, there are so many pitfalls and there are so many days where, is it worth it? I'm going to give up. This is crazy. I'm not getting anywhere. That really puts you through again, that kind of apprenticeship period of look, if this means so much to you, you will do anything that you need to do. You will go through whatever you need to go through. And particularly in my role as Judas Priest, we did all of that. We did the sleeping in the back of the van. We did the barely having enough food for one meal a day type of deal. You know, KK scrubbing his teeth in the snow in Scandinavia (laughs) is not a story made up. It's a real thing, you know. And, um, And the first record that we made rock and roller it was called our first label we went to them and asked them for i think it was like twenty dollars a week each to survive because if we didn't have that we'd have to have second second uh sources of income and they turned us down flat so right through the the early part of the band's career in priest especially we were doing multiple multiple jobs you know to just to pay the bills and and put some food in your stomach, but the, most of it went into, into equipment, obviously. New strings, new drum skins, uh, a new mic, whatever it was. Um, you have to you have to really figure that out. You really have to figure this out right at the early stage. The thing is, what happens there is your, your, your early music is probably sometimes the, your best music because you've got nothing to lose. You've got nothing to lose. You're not famous. You know, you haven't got a gold record haven't got a platinum record. You're not playing in front of thousands of people. So your creativity is coming from a very pure source. So now, you know, in my 38th, 39th year of being a professional musician, I look back at those early days with a lot of fond memories.
0: You came out in the um, in the early 90s. When and to what extent were you out as uh, gay to your friends and your family and the,
1: and the people that you were working with in Judas Priest? Well, it, with family, it was never discussed. It still isn't discussed now. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I'm, me and my partner have been together for fifteen years. Um, you know, it's like the elephant, the elephant in the living room, type of deal. I love my family dearly, and they respect me as much as I respect them. And that, at the end of the day, is the issue, isn't it? It's respect. Respect each other for who we are. We're all different: different sexual orientation, different religion, different colours of the skin, different jobs different social strata. It doesn't really matter if the respect is there, you know, we can get through a lot of things in life, but with me, you know, being a metalhead, being in a, in a, in a, in an essentially, and to some extent still essentially homophobic realm in music. Um, it was difficult, but again, you you learn to deal with it. What, what I was doing for the longest time was putting a lot of things before myself and, when I went through my drug and rehab thing in 1986, I've been clean and sober since 1986, I was taught you've got to put your own house in order first. You've got to really, it's not being selfish, you've got to get yourself kind of figured out and then everything else will not necessarily fall into place around you, but at least you can take care of other things. But look after your own needs first. And and I, I thought, thats is that the right way to live? But it is. It's the only way. You can remain sane and sensible, and in the, and in the end, connect and be helpful and useful to other people, as and when you need to. So, I, I struggled with all that through through many many years until the moment came when, very, um, you know, unpreplanned, uh, I mentioned that speaking as a gay man, yada yada yada. I was on MTV. <laughs> And the you know the producer drops his clipboard and he's like, did he just say that? You know, and then it was like a firestorm around the world. What what we all found very very quickly was that in the metal community, it's it's nothing more than the greatest place to be in terms of respect and tolerance and compassion and understanding. And I'm probably it's probably easy for me to say that because I'd already reached a level of success. So. Um, I also found out that a lot of people were going, yeah, we need that anyway, <laughs> but I didn't know that. I mean, it's another of those, you know, you can't see the wood for the trees type of deal. Um, I need to backtrack slightly and, and address that, that statement about homophobic metal heads. That's not entirely true. That's not painting the whole picture. I think there's a small portion as in all walks of life where you have that level of intolerance and bigotry. And sometimes it's curable. Sometimes it's not for me. It was acceptance, and it was just a wonderful feeling. Um, everybody in the band, in priests, knew. You know, I knew that my family and, and all my close friends knew I get, because it was, you know, well, you he got a girlfriend. You did you have a girlfriend. You know, And the second-guessing and innuendo. What you do when you set yourself free uh, is, is just that. You set yourself free when you step out of the closet. It's not for everybody. Not everybody can do it. Some people never do. Some people prefer to live the way they live, and you know, again, respect is the word. But if if you can, if if you if you're able, um, I always urge people to to consider that moment because it's the greatest feeling in the world. All the all the whispering behind your back, you you take the ammunition away from people. You become a stronger person, and that's what it's all about. And and I'm I'm assuming that a lot of young people are listening to me talk right now, and I know that. In in my life as a teenager, I was going through absolute hell trying to come to issues with with my sexuality, and it's still a, it's still a problem now, even in today's enlightened world and and the, the self help groups and all the places you you can talk this type of issue through. It's a it's a horrible thing to try and come to terms with, but you've got to come to terms with it. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not a freak. You're not weird. You're perfectly normal. You're okay. That's just the way it's turned out to be it's not a choice of lifestyle as, a, as as opposed to what the extreme right will say we can change you we can cue you forget it that's rubbish you know you are who you are be proud of who you are and step forward
0: you know I, I was thinking as you were as you were saying that about you know the spirit of uh, so much of metal and especially so much of Judas priest is about you um, uh, is about this kind of outrageous 11 out of 10 um, uh, self-expression and, you know, vanquishing foes and yes. freedom. Yes. Um, it must have been very difficult to present yourself in that way while, while as as a god of that mm. while you were struggling with those issues yourself.
1: Maybe that's what I put some of that, you know, this is like – Uh, jesse dr phil here because maybe (laughs) that's where it was because uh, you know i'm i'm the primary lyric writer for priest obviously in in all my solo activities all of my lyrics are full of optimism all of my lyrics are full of that confrontational situation i believe the good will always out win will always win over evil i believe that i think that's the way of the world and um I, I use that. I use a lot of, you know, metaphors and, and kind of smoke screens and a little bit of ambiguity in my lyrics. But, um, you know, when I'm talking about the painkiller, you, you can put that up against anything, dictatorship, um, you know, bigotry, war, you know, a- a- anything anything where you, you can overcome um, difficulty. So maybe that's what I was doing in all those years. I mean, I kind of sidetracked in the Turbo record, you know, and, and went a little bit more lightweight, so to speak. But I, I still think those messages are valuable in terms of fantasy and escapism and rock and roll. But the, the, the bulk of my lyrics have always had kind of a, a, a serious uh, content to them. And fortunately, being in a metal band, I was able to, to utilize those messages in the lyrics in, uh, in the right way.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rob Halford. He's best known as the frontman of the legendary metal band Judas Priest. Here's one of their signature hits, Hellbent for Leather.
2: Hellbent, Hellbent for Leather leather. Like a faster than a shadow Comes the flare from a raging sun An
1: exhibition, ship position Yet no one knows from where he comes
2: To the hell bent, hell bent
0: for leather. Starting in the late 70s with uh, one of your signature hit, hits, uh, Hellbent for Leather, you, you started in wearing, essentially, I don't know, I, like basically something between biker clothes and SM and m clothes mm. um, and doing things like, you know, riding in on a motorcycle and all these, mm. all these crazy things. Mm. Um, when did you first start thinking like, you know what would be great for this band? Like if we just went to the uh, bondage store
1: and just bought some crazy stuff. <laughs> well, that's the only way, that, in those days, that, that was the only way you could get that kind of gear. <laughs> Mr. S in London. I think he's still there, actually. Um, but if you look on the YouTube and, and put in Judas Priest Japan 1970-something, you'll see a very different looking band. Um, we didn't really establish the, that particular the correct look <laughs> uh, until uh, probably um, Sad Wings. No, Sin after Sin, Stein Class. There's the 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 song you mentioned, Jesse Hell Bent for Leather, which is a great song, and actually it was Glenn that wrote the lyrics to those um, that particular tune. Um, a glint of steel and a flash of light. You know, uh, again, it's a very assertive macho type of song. And I remember us talking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool? This is a, a, a biker song. Wouldn't it be great if we could bring a bike on stage? And I remember whatever, wh- wherever we were at, we asked someone, is there anybody here who, who rides a bike? And somebody did. And we said, hey, we'll give you five quid, you know, 10 bucks, if we can, you know, use the bike on stage. And that's how it all started. And now, of course, that's become kind of part of tradition and the heritage of the band. And, and so suddenly heavy metal music the sound the power uh the dynamic the aggression uh all of the great um aesthetics of of metal had a look so now when you see somebody walking down the street they're not going to be decked out like we are on stage but if you, you see somebody and you go there's a metal head you know the attributes with the studied belts and the chains or whatever the, the wristbands that's your um those are your colors so to speak
0: were you aware in the in the early eighties of the kind of uh, uh, the kind of odd irony of the fact that this was the
1: that this was the metal costume, yeah. but it was also a, a see, gay subculture yeah. costume? You see, that's just me. I mean, I mean, again, I, I, I kind of think that's cool. There's something about me. I don't know whether it's the inner child or the inner stupidity, but you know, all the naivety. But that never even crossed my mind, and I was walking out on stage with this, you know, village people type of <laughs> vibe going. And I thought he was extremely funny, extremely funny. It's bittersweet when you think of the torment I was going through mentally. But um, yeah, uh, and, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad, really. Uh, I mean, uh, in, in essence, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a. I'm not into that kind of scene of, of of my particular world. Again, respect, it just doesn't appeal to me. But uh, but it is ironic that um, that, uh, that there's a correlation there and people were going, come on, Rob, we knew all the time. You didn't have to tell us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you you were really hiding in plain
1: sight. Yeah, hiding in plain sight, exactly. What was
0: the, um, looking back, the most kind of r- ridiculous, amazing, delightful uh You know, Spinal Tap moment uh, that you had in your presentation.
1: Well, again, you know, again, it's 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 something that's kind of tinged with sadness because here's the deal: it's the ultimate Spinal Tap moment. We um we were on the Painkiller tour. We were coming to the end of the tour. Remember, this is 1991. We'd just come off the back of that very, very difficult Reno trial. Prior to that, the band had been working pretty much nonstop for 30 years. I, I uh, should, without a break,
0: I should interject here that you're you're referring to you, you had been uh, uh, sued in civil court um, yes. by uh, the parents of two children who had committed suicide, and um, yes. the suggestion was that it was your your subliminal messages in your music that had driven them to
1: suicide. Exactly. And of course, that was complete and utter rubbish. And it was an extremely difficult uh, time to go through. We were in a court in Reno for a month. And we faced these accusers uh, and um, basically told them that firstly, you should, take, you should take responsibility for your kids. And I think that's what parents should do. And I mean, I know it's difficult. But you should still be take responsibility for your kids until they're old enough, you know, to leave the nest. Um, the kids were out of control, drugs and booze. The only thing that they loved was their metal. They loved Judas Priest. That's the irony of that that particular situation. They were hardcore priest fans. But they got messed up with um with booze and drugs, you know. So
0: you're coming off of this really difficult period.
1: Coming off with that, you know, but um, we we held back the release of Pine Killer, but now it was time to release it. We released it. We had an incredibly successful tour all around the world, and I think the last show was at um in Toronto, and we were playing in a one of these baseball fields that, you know, doubles up as a, as an outside venue, loads of people, 30,000 people, whatever. The stage was in the middle of the baseball field. The dressing rooms were obviously, you know, where the dog outs are, that type of deal. So to get from that location to the stage, we had to get on golf carts The lights go down, the fans start going crazy. We jump on golf carts, and we're all going off in different directions (laughs) (laughs) for a start-off. They're spinal taps. Some of us are going north, some of us going south. We eventually somehow get to the stage. While the intro tape is running, I dash up, get onto my Harley-Davidson, which is under the drum riser, at a cue in the intro tape. These pneumatic steps come up underneath the drum riser, and I'm able to roar out on the Harley. Everything was going to plan until suddenly somebody somebody yelled, we can't find KK, we can't find him, we've got to stop and start again. Well, that's what we were attempting to do, but nobody told me this. <laughs> so I roared out on the bike, the guy that operates the stairs was bringing him back down, so I just belted into the bottom seat, uh, bottom set of stairs rather, at, I don't know how many miles an hour, knocked myself double back. You know gymnastics Beijing <laughs> landed on my back underneath all this smoke and dry ice the bikes felt fell, fallen to one side almost on top of me and i'm I'm practically I'm literally knocked out. everything is a blur, everything's got whoosh zooming in and out for about a minute or so. then I can feel Glenn kicking me trying <laughs> to find where Rob is. and that that was and still will be the only time that hellbent for leather was an, was was an instrumental because it had no vocals on so there it is that's that I mean how more spinal type can you get than that I should know. we should
0: say too that you were knocked unconscious but you finished the
1: show yeah I, I did I well you know the show must go on <laughs> as Freddie Freddie Mercury used to say
0: it's bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne my guest is Rob Halford lead singer of Judas Priest Rob, we we've talked a lot about things that are uh really super metal, like uh riding motorcycles and wearing outrageous outfits and rocking out and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. Um uh on uh, probably towards the bottom of that list is Christmas.
1: Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> Well actually it's on the top of my list right now. Thank you.
0: <laughs> but uh I, I think uh the question needs to be asked.
1: Um, wh- what led you to think, I should make a metal Christmas album? Because I'm the metal god and I can do what I damn well want. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes feel that way. You know, um, I was talking to Jason Bonham the other day. We did a charity show uh, in Los Angeles uh, for the uh, the Midnight Mission, I think it's called, it was me, Jason, slash uh, Steve from Toto, Keith Emerson from Emerson Lake and Palmer, Tony White on bass, Ed Roth on drums, uh, on the keyboards. It was like a super group. And uh, Jason and I were talking afterwards, uh, and uh, we sounded like a bunch of grumpy old men, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> and I, I, bought, I said, Jason, just listen to us talk, bro. You know, this is this is Jason Bonham, the son of the late great Bonzo Bonham, the drummer from Led Zeppelin, one of the greatest bands of all time. And, um, so, uh, we, we, just got a little, a little bit sidetracked and then we said, you know, how cool it is that, that we can do what we do and that we, we can really pick and choose where we want to go in our, in our career. And so that's where I feel I have the great luxury these days to be able to do that. I'm, I'm able to look at where I've been and look at the opportunities that still have a sense of adventure attached to them. And so it, that's what it is with me right now with um, Halford 3, the first solo release from the Halford Banyan about seven years. It's a Christmas record, yeah. It's ten tracks, six of them um, are quite famous uh, traditional uh, holiday songs and four original uh, pieces of, of, of music. And um, I love the season. I love the holiday season. It's, it, it means a lot to me. Uh, I'll be there this Christmas time with my family, uh, back in the UK, mom and dad and brother and sister and friends and relatives. It'll be great. There's something very charming
0: about, uh, the mix of, uh, sort of older Christmas songs. I mean, not let it snow, but like, um, uh, you know, what child is this? Mm. Um, and the, uh, sort of grand scale of your music. Mm. (laughs) Um, uh, was was that part of was that part of what drew you to this uh, to the material to the traditional songs that you chose particularly
1: well well thank you for acknowledging that and sometimes again wood for the trees but yeah i mean there's a there's a vast there's a vast dyna- dynamic canyon between oh holy night which is, is this gigantic opus with crushing guitars and keyboards and drums and big massive vocals to that really delicate uh, what child is this and um it was like pick and choose. We were not going to do Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer or Foster <laughs> the Snowman. That would have been ridiculous. We wanted to make a. We wanted to make a pretty serious record. Quite frankly, I mean, I, you know, I, I carry a lot of things with me. It's not baggage. It's who I am. It's what I do. It's what I represent. And I wasn't going to let the team down uh, by going, you know, completely off off the, off the planet, whatever. And so. Um, Th- those particular ones that I covered, Oh Holy Night, Come All You Faithful, We Three Kings—they're um, beautiful songs. They're great songs. A good song will always take interpretation and, and, and adaptation, so you're able to put your own kind of impression and your own signature, whatever you want to call it, onto the piece. And uh, it was—it took a took a bit of a time to figure out where we were where we were going to go in in covering those those beautiful. Um, beautiful tracks and then the other the other tracks the originals were kind of spontaneous uh, pieces that came together just because it was such an inspiring uh, recording session but this is me you know it's the metal god for the holiday season and uh, there it is
0: rob halford everyone his two holiday albums are winter songs and celestial both classics in the heavy metal holiday genre Rob Halford also wrote a book earlier this year. It's called Biblical Rob Halford's Heavy Metal Scriptures. It's full of words of wisdom from the metal god himself. Look, you just heard Rob Halford. I don't have to endorse Rob Halford, but one of popular music's most delightful human beings. More of this year's Bullseye Holiday Spectacular still to come. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Adam McLeod. And I'm Alexis B. Preston. And we host a show called Comfort Creatures, the show for every animal lover, be it a creature of scales, six legs, fur, feathers, or fiction. Comfort Creatures is a show for people who prefer their friends to have paws instead of hands. Unless they are raccoon hands, that is okay. That is absolutely okay, yeah. Yes.
1: Every Thursday, we'll be talking to guests about their pets, learning about pets in history, art, and even fiction. Plus, we'll discover differences between pet ownership across the pond. It's going to be a hoot on Maximum Fun.
0: welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Time now for a special holiday edition of the segment we like to call The Song That Changed My Life. It's a chance for musicians, artists, and other creators to tell us about the music that made them who they are. This time, it's Cy Smith. Your
2: love takes me high
0: Si Smith is a brilliant singer, songwriter, and producer who lives here in Los Angeles. She's been recording soul records for over a decade now. She's collaborated with folks like Kamasi Washington and Thundercat. She's also an immensely in-demand backup singer. Name a great, she's sung with them, Sheila E., Shaka Khan, Usher, Whitney Houston. Her own records are fantastic, and one of them is called Christmas in Cyberspace. That's cyberspace with an S, as in Cy Smith. When we asked her about her Christmas album, and if any of the songs on it had a story we could talk about with her on the show, she talked about My Favorite Things. And she certainly did not let us down. We won't waste any more time before we get into it. Here's Cy Smith.
3: The first time I heard My Favorite Things was in the movie The Sound of Music, of course.
2: Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things.
3: I think the first time I saw The Sound of Music I was about, 6 or 7 years old, I was in my mother's bedroom watching it on TV uh, in our apartment in Hillcrest Heights, Maryland.
2: Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things.
3: You know, that melody caught my ear because it was such a distinct melody. Um, as a child, that melody just sounded like a dance to me. It just sounded like, it just sounded like a dance. <laughs> if a dance could sing, that's what it would sound like.
2: These are a few of my favorite things. When the. Bites, when the stings When i feeling sad I simply remember my favorite things And then I don't feel so
3: bad. Even on paper, when you look at it, it looks like a dance, you know? Um, and the things that she was singing about were quite abstract to me, you know, cream-colored ponies and, you know, like, I, I didn't know anything that she was talking about. I didn't know what a schnitzel was. But that melody made me want to know, you know. (laughs) So the next time that I heard my favorite things, and it really sort of changed my life, was when um, I might have been about eight or nine. I had an aunt, my aunt Bobby, in Teaneck, New Jersey. She had a little radio in the kitchen and The Coltrane version came on the radio. I didn't recognize it as my favorite things, but she began singing it on top of the Coltrane version. And that's when it sort of resonated with me. That's when I went, wait, that's that song from the movie. I hadn't seen the movie repeatedly, so I didn't walk around singing the soundtrack of, you know, the sound of music. But when she sang it, it just reminded me of that song, and all of a sudden, I don't know, like, it made sense to me. You know what I mean? Like, all of a sudden, all of those sort of abstract concepts made sense. Like, oh, wow, I can just think of something that I really like, and anything that's frightening me will go away. I wasn't listening to jazz at all when I was a kid. And that was the thing. When she started singing this on top of this, it made all of a sudden jazz accessible to me. I think at that point, jazz was just sort of, you know, music that that older people listened to. It wasn't something that I would go and put on the record player, you know. But when she started singing it, I was like, oh, jazz is something that, you can sing along to jazz is something that you know you can sort of interpret songs that you already know jazz is a can be a template that that was sort of a new understanding for me like it was also it was a discovery everything about that song made me curious, the melody made me curious. When I started listening to really what those words were, that made me want to sort of embrace my own writing a little more. And so often I would replace those lyrics with my own long before I did this, you know, my current project. I would always just sort of make up my own lyrics in that same pattern because I thought it would be cool to sing something that really resonated with me things that really were my favorite things you know jumping on something
2: swinging on playgrounds hanging around
3: like it was probably really silly like that there was always something like that things that I really like to do So yeah, when I decided to do a Christmas project I knew I wanted to record my favorite things It had been on my mind for 20 years <laughs> These
2: are a few of my
3: to, to finally sit down and record this song It was the easiest thing to me Because I felt like I've been thinking about this for so long So it didn't take me long to sort of Even rewriting the lyrics that was like I did it in the car on the way to the studio.
2: Shoes with fat laces and oversized glasses Watching my people rise up from the ashes Sharing a smile with that guy on the train
3: And I didn't have to think too hard because I think those items had been sort of running around my head on and off for the last 20
2: years. So it down on my sisters and brothers it's
3: you know. Whenever I sing this melody, I just immediately am transported back to my childhood. That just because the melody, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, they just created something so beautiful with that lilting melody. It just lilts like a, like I don't know what lilts in nature. You know, it just it look it sounds like. A stick figure just sort of becoming curvy all of a sudden. You know what I mean? It just sounds like air all of a sudden becoming a form. You know? It sounds like magic. And I and so when you sit at the piano and sing this, it's it's just liberating. It's it's just a lot of fun. I can't describe it any other way.
2: Knowing you can't keep a good woman.
0: Sai Smith on the song that changed her life, My Favorite Things. Sai's Christmas record is called Christmas in Cyberspace. You can buy or stream it now. If you live in New York or San Francisco, you can see her live. She's performing with the trumpeter Chris Bodie at the Blue Note in Manhattan and in San Francisco at the SF Jazz Center this month and next. We'll have a link to dates on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest on our holiday special is Mickey Dolenz of The Monkees. The Monkees was, of course, a TV show that aired from 1966 to 1968, a Hollywood version of A Hard Day's Night, four lovable goofs in a band playing songs, bumming around L.A., solving mysteries, and, of course, spending the night in haunted houses. The band members, Davy Jones, Mike Nesmith, Peter Tork, and Mickey Dolenz, weren't a band before the show started. They auditioned for their parts. Most of them didn't really play instruments at the time. But man, they sure had some absolutely legit all-time hits.
2: Take the last ten of Popsville And I'll meet you at the station You can
4: be here by 4.30 Cause I've made your reservation Don't be slow I'm oh, a no I'm
2: no, a no-no-no oh,
0: Honestly, those records were so good that it's no surprise that the band lasted a lot longer than the show. They learned their instruments, they started writing their own great songs, the whole deal. When I talked with Mickey Dolans in 2017, the Monkees had just recorded their 13th studio album, Christmas Party. It's a holiday record full of standards and covers, even a few originals. It's got contributions from Rivers Cuomo, Peter Buck, and others. Here's the lead track on the album with Mickey on lead vocals. It's called Unwrap You at Christmas. I can't wait to unwrap. Dolan's, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the
4: show. Great to be here. I am such a big fan of you, your show, uh well, actually all of NPR. Uh I even did a challenge a couple of years ago, big uh big challenge. Uh,
0: I'm a huge fan. So so nice to be here with you. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for saying that. I have an important question for you. Do you are do you like Christmas? Are you a Christmas person?
4: Yeah, yeah, I am um born and raised in the in the valley of uh LA. Not in a huge religious sense, just celebrating the uh equinox. I guess <laughs> celebrating, you know, winter and and uh and all that. Um but yeah, we always had a big big
0: Christmas. Do you have fond memories of Christmas when you were a kid? Oh, of course, yeah. Wow. Was it in the valley? Was it like the most classic uh, 1950s suburban Christmas imaginable?
4: Yes, absolutely. Hit the nail on the head. My mom, uh, we had this huge picture window looking out over the the backyard. Small house, but nice big picture window. Um, She would do a incredible painting she was quite a great artist and she would do some incredible uh, Christmas actually she did it at Easter also and you know other moments and she would do this beautiful uh, uh, you know, what do you call it? Not graffiti. <laughs> A big painting, you know, on the window and then with, you know, poster paint and then wash it off. Oh, yeah, so we, we actually had very, very classic uh, uh, American graffiti Christmases uh, and Halloweens and Thanksgivings and, you know, all that stuff, yeah. Very Norman
0: you... Rockwell. Did you listen to Christmas music at Christmas time when you were a kid?
4: Yeah, not necessarily cuz I wanted to, but that's <laughs> that's what they put on because when you're a kid, your parents run the machine, right?
0: Well, I mean, some of that stuff is some of that stuff is really good especially at that time. I oh, mean, it's you can't wonderful. argue with with your uh with your Nat King Coles and your you know, the crooners made some really great Christmas music. Oh,
4: no, no. And funny you should mention him because he is one of my favorite. Um, my influences vocally, uh, musically, uh, were people like Nat King Cole, uh, Johnny Mathis, who I just met, actually. Um, you know, the Sinatra, I, who I did meet. Uh, yeah, my influences were, um, were all that stuff. And, um yeah. I love um, love all that stuff.
0: What was the best Christmas present you ever got as a kid? Ooh, wow. Great question.
4: I think it probably was a Lionel train set. A big one. The original full-size, you know, mass... I don't know what gauge it was, but... Uh, and my dad, who, who was very handy with building stuff, he built me a a big platform uh, in the garage where the train set would, you know, be set up. So that was probably at a big Lionel, a full gauge, I don't know what they're called now, but um, uh, probably a train set. That was probably it.
0: Did you get involved in all the mechanics of it? That was like the dawn of computer programming was people who were really into switching their train sets.
4: Well, back then, uh, you know, it was still uh, (laughs) steam-powered. It was... We had to actually put real coal in the in the engine. Um, I've always been very, very uh, into building stuff. I have a, actually a, a, a woodworking furniture company with my daughter, called Dolans and Daughters Fine Furniture, and we we make handmade, uh, uh, real high end kind of custom furniture stuff in a w- workshop that I have. I've always been into it. My dad was, and over the years, I. I got into it even deeper and deeper and um, and now I have this business and um, I, I do it for the love of it, you know, and I was going to be an architect. That was my plan.
0: Really? Because you started acting as a kid. I mean, both your folks were actors, if right. I'm remembering correctly. Did, was that like the family business or was that something they were trying to keep you away from? No, quite the
4: contrary. It was the fam- family business. Um my dad was an actor, quite successful. My mom was a singer-actress until she started having kids, and then uh, uh, she became a stay-at-home mom, which, thank goodness for us, uh, uh, of course, um, it was wonderful. Um, uh, but my dad did real well, uh, uh, signed to Howard Hughes, uh, of all people, for a while. And um, I-, I had my first... Television series when I was ten. Uh, it was called Circus Boy. It was on NBC, um, a national, you know, big network show in the fifties, about nineteen fifty-five. Around that time of Rin Tin Tin and F- Flickin and Fury and all that, and um, did very well. We ran uh, two or three seasons until I kind of outgrew the part, and then my parents very wisely. And by the way, they had never pushed me into it. We weren't that kind of Hollywood Beverly Hills lifestyle, which is fine for some, you know, eyes and teeth, honey, eyes and teeth. Um, I was brought up in the valley and in a very rural uh, suburban environment. You know, I would come home from shooting on the set and my father would say, you have to clean the pool, Um, had horses on the property and, you know, things like that. So uh, uh, he was from Italy, off the boat from Italy, and my mom was from Texas. So they were kind of no-nonsense people and, and didn't let me get away with uh, – well, I was going to say <laughs> but I won't because <laughs> – Because <laughs> you know it's what a crazy operation I'm running here. <laughs> so, no, um, they never – I don't ever remember being, you know, pushed and hassled, you know, any sort of uh, uh, pressure at all. Did you like it? I mean – was yeah. it something that you really wanted? No. I followed in my father's footsteps. Uh, but how could you not like, you know, being... Well, that series, Circus Boy, was this kid... Uh, the the spine of it uh, was that it was an orphan kid at the turn of the century who'd been adopted by a clown in a circus and they took care of him and he turned out being the one that would also solve the you know save the day so i'm living for 3 years i basically i was living as a a 10 or 12 year old kid in a circus at the turn of the yeah. century i mean how can you not like that i mean with an al- an animals i learned to ride an elephant and in fact that was the first thing they said to me they said uh, yeah. Uh, okay, well, you know, you're going to have to ride an elephant. And I said, okay, where do I start? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it's like... kind of like when I got the monkeys, they said, well, you're going to be the drummer. I said,
0: okay, where do I start? <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mickey Dolenz of the Monkeys. We have a clip of Circus Boy, uh, the show in which you starred uh, as a pre-adolescent or I guess an adolescent. It was as you mentioned about a young man whose parents were killed in a trapeze accident. your character was named Corky right adopted by Joey the clown Hi. played by the late Noah Beery jr and in this scene Corky is the water boy to bimbo the baby elephant that we've discussed and uh, in this clip uh, Corky uh, Corky is there with bimbo and Joey.
2: teeth after every meal. Because if you ever got a toothache, that'd be too bad. Hey, Corky, have you, have you seen JoJo anyplace? Gosh, Uncle Joy, is he loose again? Oh, you know, I, I, he's figured out how to open up his cage all by himself.
4: <laughs> uh, half the time, I can't tell who's training who. Here, I've been trying to make a clown out of that monkey, and he's making
1: a monkey out of me.
0: Oh, he'll make a good clown, Uncle Joy. Well, I was teaching him how to put on his
2: own makeup in your wagon and- him. <coughs>
0: Oh, you're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, I like your line delivery. I mean, it is the classicist 1956 right. uh, child on a television show line de- delivery like,
2: gee whiz. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Yeah, absolutely right. I ended up doing a lot of voiceovers in the 70s over cartoons, and it was that same kind of thing. You know, it was, I was like always the kid named Skip doing Hanna-Barbera cartoons going, Whoa, no! Look out! Here we
2: go! <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll wrap up with Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees after a quick break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
5: Hi everybody, my name is Justin
2: McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy.
5: Dr. Sydney McElroy. Th- that is true. It's important in this context because we host a medical history podcast called Saw Sawbones. Bones. Oh, I thought we were going to, we shouldn't work worked on that. Sawbones. Sawbones isn't afraid to ask the hard-hitting questions. Like, are vaccines as safe and reliable as they want us to believe? Yes. Do I have to get a flu shot? Yes. Uh, okay, is science a miracle? No. We have a lot of great history for you and a lot of laughs. And sometimes the history is so bad that there's no laughs,
2: but you'll learn something, you'll feel something.
5: And it's always sawbones.
2: That's
0: right. Every week on (laughs) MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we are celebrating the holidays this year with some of our favorite holiday interviews from years past. Right now, my guest is Mickey Dolenz, the drummer from The Monkees. When he and I talked in 2018, that band had just released Christmas Party. Let's get back into it. Tell me where you were in your life when you got the part on The Monkees. I had uh,
4: gone back to high school after Circus Boy. My parents very wisely took me out of the business. Um, I had been offered another show, they told me years later, um, but I was turning 13, going into puberty, and I. they sent me to a child psychologist. They said it was an educational counselor, but looking back now, I know it was a shrink uh, with Rorschach and all that, and I guess, you know, he must have said, you must take this child out of the business immediately <laughs> uh, because – as we've heard, the horror stories, um, the the problems come with child stars uh, after the fact, not during. Uh, during the uh, the the you know during the success, you're you're glorified. They love you. Everybody loves you, and you're taking care of cosseted. And then all of a sudden, one day, you're a has been. Um, you're out of work, and uh, you're just entering puberty, which is tough enough as it is. But now you're not only entering puberty, but you're a (laughs) has-been entering puberty. And my parents, I don't know, uh, they just wisely, I guess with the aid of this uh, child psychologist, said, no, we're not going to let him do another show. He's going back to school, public school, right off of the set. And I literally, one morning, one Monday morning, ended up back in junior high school, what they called it then— as a ninth grader um, with my roots, gr- my brown roots growing out from my blonde bleached hair from the TV series. And so they threw me right back into to, to the real world. And then after high school, I w- went to college doing uh, anthropology, psychology, a uh, couple of other. I got into science, you know. I got into electronics and uh, was really getting into science and building stuff. And uh, I, you know, my father then passed away the uh, year after I got out of high school, which did present some problems, obviously. And I was at, at a bit of a loose end. Um, I would be doing little guest shots. Uh, I had an agent, and the agent would get me a little job on Peyton Place or Mr. Novak or one of these uh, late 50s, early 60s shows. And, and, um, but my, but that wasn't my plan. I, you know, I I was doing it kind of for summer money, and a friend of mine said, you know, we both like building stuff, which I we did both of us, and you know, I had a workshop even then, and he said, let's be architects and start a little architectural firm. So, I uh, enrolled into LA Trade Tech. Uh, I just got an honorary award, uh, not award, what do you call it, honorary degree from from them. I did about a year and a half, uh, two, three semesters. But in the summers, when when I wasn't, you know, going to school, I would do these little TV shows and, um, you know, guest shots. And... But I wasn't stupid. I mean, I knew the power of showbiz. I'd had a series. I knew how you know valuable and and, and important and life changing it can be. And so, one pilot season uh, in nineteen sixty five comes along, and um, my agent—I had an agent—and um, I was going to school every day, and he would say, uh, "Hey, I got an audition for you. Three o'clock on Thursday." Blah, blah, blah some I would go to some I would say I'm sorry I got a test <laughs> and I didn't um so the monkey audition uh comes along I did even at the time sort of since this was kind of different uh, especially in the fact that you had to be able to sing and play and act uh to get into the audition or get through it. Um, uh, so clearly they must have had in mind at the time that they were going to kind of, cre- you know, create this sort of, you know, real uh, musical entity, I guess. Um, my audition piece on guitar was Johnny Be Good" by Chuck Berry. I, I still do it to this day. Um, and then there was acting and scene study and improv, and the improv I had the most trouble with. Uh, mostly un- uncomfortable, uh, and I am still to this day um, uh, with improv because I was raised, you know, to learn the script, read the lines and show up and do the scene and go home. And th- so the audition process was quite uh, extensive. Uh, but my agent calls and says, uh, you got the pilot. But, and I was in school studying to be an architect, and I said, great. And I took off 10 days to do the pilot, and then I went back to school because I knew that 9 out of 10 pilots don't sell. And I wasn't going to take a chance, so I went back to school studying to be an architect. And uh, then when uh, we got the order for the first season, the 26 episodes of the first season, I then then I decided I better quit school.
0: I have a clip from uh, the TV show The Monkeys. And uh, it's from an episode called The Monkeys Watch Their Feet, in which uh, you, Mickey, are abducted by aliens (laughs) Um, in a classic monkey (laughs) storyline. So we're about to hear you. You are on a—you've been beamed onto a flying saucer. You are then cloned (laughs) by the uh, blue-skinned captain and his assistant— then your evil, evil robot double is unleashed back into the world to spy on the other monkeys, Peter Torkin and, and Michael Nesmith. Right. Let's take a listen.
4: Hey, Mickey, isn't that a spaceship over there?
0: No, it's the powerfully persuasive argument of a space alien.
4: What does a spaceship look like? Well, I don't know. I never saw one before. Then how do you know it is a spaceship? He's right, man. Probably some new drive-in. <laughs> The way to recognize an alien. is to take note of strange behavior. Just take some notes on this next scene. Hello, Bunny. I'm here in enemy head, headquarters. They have harmonic destructors here. Like we do on Slavik, and when they use them, they knit terrible and... Ah! Horrible sounds. The they also have insufferable torches here on Earth. Whenever a pussycat cries, they tear off its head. Definitely not. Then they holler in its ear. But, and then they put the head back on the body. I don't know how it stays alive. Yes. Mickey, Mickey, who are you talking to you just saying? No one. Well, well, you're acting very strange, you know. I'm not acting strange. I'm acting perfectly normal. There's nothing strange about me. <laughs> don't tear off that cat's head again. I can't stand it. <laughs>
0: It is a lot of nonsense for a television show in the mid-1960s. Oh,
4: boy, a lot. But, you know, uh, interesting you should say that. If you look back, and I've studied it, I've done lectures now. People have asked me, you know, for years, you know, what was it? How was it? How did it happen? It it wasn't that—if um, you look back, it, it really wasn't that—I um, don't know, what's the word— Um. Uh, I guess uh, uh, surprising because the producers had made some very clever early on decisions when they were doing their Bible, uh, which is the, the essence of, of a show. For starters, and funnily enough, I was just listening to an interview you did with Eric Idle, who I know I've known for years, and he was talking about Monty Pythons, and he mentioned how the humor was not topical. The monkey's humor was not topical, nor was it satirical. And I think that's one of the reasons why The monkeys and Monty Python <laughs> and I Love Lucy and other shows um, stand up for so long because they're not topical. And that was a, a conscious decision that the producers made. We're not going to talk about anything in the news this week. We're not going to do anything too satirical. Uh, it was uh, another friend of mine. Uh, a guy named John Lennon. Oh, did I drop that name? I'll
0: grab it for you. I got it. Um,
4: Who said the monkeys were like the Marx Brothers. And if you look at the monkeys show, the project, the whole thing, as this sort of half hour Marx Brothers musical movie on television, everything makes a whole lot more sense. If you think of an old Marx Brothers movie where everybody ran around and and danced and sang and had a plot and there was a bad guy and a good guy and people were doing silly stuff and, you know, that scene you just played could have been right out of a Marx Brothers movie. We were screened Marx Brothers movies during the preparation process, for instance. So it was not coincidental. I mean, uh, there was some thought put behind this that the show would not be topical, it would not be satirical, because that would date it very quickly. Um, and also, a very important point I think is that the monkeys were never successful. It was the struggle for success, because that—that I think is what it endured it to all those kids around the world um, was that we represented all those kids in their garages, in their basements, in their kitchens, and wherever, in their garage, trying to be the Beatles. And that is essentially what The Monkey Show was about, this band that wanted to be the Beatles. And on the television show, we never made it. It was always the struggle for success, that—that that I think is, like I say, one of the things that endured it to so many people.
0: Did you want to be a uh, lovable Mark's brother Z in Goofballs, or did you want to be cool rock stars when the possibility that you actually maybe could be cool rock stars uh, came up?
4: In my case, it was I woke up one day, and. The, i fell asleep one night as a working actor entertainer singer you know mu- musician cuz i had to do all that and i woke up in the morning as a cool rock star <laughs> and i hadn't i was like whoa when did that happen um it's kind of exemplified in a story i've told a bunch of times um during the uh, the show on the air in uh september of 26 uh, <laughs> <laughs> what 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 century are we in here uh, in the uh, in september of 66 uh, and um uh we'd been filming since june or july and recording of course all the time day and night i was doing most of the lead uh singing so i would go on the set from seven in the morning to seven at night and then have dinner and then go into the studio and record uh a vocal sometimes two or three a night, and because um, they needed so much material for the um, for the television show, and um, <clears throat> one uh, and then that uh, that Christmas that uh, this time that year sixty six, uh, they gave us a hiatus. To um, the show had been on the air since September. We'd heard that it was doing very well. We'd heard that Clarksville had gone to number one. But we're working twelve, fourteen hours a day. In those days, of course, uh, without social media and all that other kind of stuff, you know, I'd get in my car in the parking lot and drive home, and never see anybody, never interact. The fans didn't know where we were or how to found, how to find us. You know, if you just went home. And that Christmas, I um, was uh, going to drive up to San Jose, where my parents and family lived at the time. With my Christmas presents and have about a week or 10 days, whatever it was, off and a uh, little hiatus. So I get my little Christmas list together and I get in my car and I drive down to the local mall there in the valley in Los Angeles where I'd shopped every year for decades with my family and I get out of my car with my little list and I walk through the big glass doors and all of a sudden people come running at me screaming and I thought it was a fire (laughs) and I'm holding open the door going slow down don't run don't panic it's so I literally did think it was a fire and they were running at me and i i had to leave i was really pissed off i had to go and give my christmas list to my brody and have him go do the shopping got in my car and had to go home well that was the first inkling that i had of of what was going on
0: i mean it sounds neat but it also sounds hard oh it was a lot of work
4: oh boy each episode took three days and then start the next one the very next day. And then we started rehearsing for uh, the the concert tour because they obviously had in mind that, that if this thing happened, they wanted us to be able to play or they would not have cast people that could. They wouldn't have bothered. They would have just cast actors and done it all, everything else, uh, you know, kind of old school. They clearly had in mind that they wanted, they hoped, that if, if um, th- the thing happened, if, if the show went, that we would uh, go on the road and, and uh, record, uh, I mean, and uh, sorry, and perform. And sure enough, you know, we did. And we, our first concert was in Hawaii, in Honolulu. At the HIC auditorium, I don't know how many thousands of people were there. And I think that their plan was, well, if we do it in Hawaii and it doesn't work,
0: no one will know. We'll have three <laughs> weeks before news reaches yeah. the mainland.
4: That's yes, right. But it did. <clears throat> uh, and it was huge. Mike Nesmith, I think, put it very, very uh, succinctly uh, one, once. He said, you know, at that point, Pinocchio became
0: a real little boy. Mickey Dolans, thanks so much for being on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. Well, I hope that was okay for you guys. Thank you. When the
4: snowman brings the snow, well it
0: just Mickey Dolans of the Monkees, their holiday treat is called Christmas Party.
4: On somebody's face, if you jump into your
0: It's the Bullseye Holiday Special. I'm Jesse Thorne, and it's that time of year again. What time? Well, of course, it is the holidays, but also the time during Bullseye's holiday episode where we turn to our three favorite brothers for some seasonal wisdom. Justin Travis and Griffin McElroy are the hosts of the Maximum Fun Podcasts, The Adventure Zone, and My Brother, My Brother, and Me. The latter of them is billed as an advice show for the modern era, It's one of the funniest podcasts out there. Uh, The advice is, uh, let's say, a mixed bag, Uh, but it's always fun. Okay,
5: no, whatever. Whatever, Jesse. (laughs) Let's walk. To be disrespected like this on the holiday episode, we're out of (laughs) here. We just got here, and you're like, maybe their advice isn't good advice. Whatever.
0: I don't need this. I want to set you guys up for success, not failure. Mm. So. If I'm promising great advice and you guys don't deliver, you look like fools. But if I promise a mixed bag and you deliver, then you're exceeding customer expectations. I learned about this when I worked retail, (laughs) under-promise and over-deliver. Exactly. So we have the, the McElroy brothers on the line. As you can hear, we have a list of holiday conundrums from Bullseye and My Brother, My Brother and Me listeners. Here's the first one. When I was tucking in my three-year-old tonight, he suddenly said to me, are you excited for Batman to come and give us presents? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's my responsibility here? He didn't specify when Batman would be coming, so I don't know if he's invented his own new holiday or if he's just mixed up on how Christmas, the holiday our family celebrates, works. Can I assume he'll wake up tomorrow and have completely forgotten this idea? Or am I going to have a crestfallen little guy in the morning or whenever he thinks this is happening if I don't pull together some kind of feast day of Batman? Also, what kind of gifts would Batman bring?
5: Oh, these are all great questions. First, first and foremost, what you got here, folks, you got four dads. And let us tell you, the thing you want your kid to forget they're excited about They'll never forget. That yeah. is the thing your child will <laughs> yeah. carry with them forever. Four days ago, my kid looked at me offhandedly. BB said, I'd like to get a snow globe. I have heard that about that snow globe <laughs> so many times <laughs> since then, it, it's a snow globe. I don't know why she's excited about it, but now it's yeah. all she wants. We We can more or less set aside the option of not having Batman come to your house. Like right now, the question has evolved into how can we get Batman at your house? Because if it doesn't happen, that's that
0: that Christmas is going to be talked about in therapy. You know, twenty five years from now. Could you get one of the lesser Batman figures? Um, oh, I thought I you know were going to say a, Batman actors. Some kind of, no, <laughs> could you get Val Kilmer? I think you could get Val Kilmer. He's just hanging yeah, out on his ranch and house. <laughs> You could get Val Kilmer, but you don't
5: need a Batman. Like every year, you don't have someone poses Santa in your house. All you have to do as the parent is say Batman came, bury a batarang in the wall, uh, yeah. maybe you know project the uh, the bat signal onto a window or two, and you're golden. Leave out a rare steak and some scalped potatoes, like which is Batman's <laughs> favorite meal, as yeah. we all know, and leave one bat shaped bite out of it. What would Batman bring? Um, I don't know, gadgets. He likes gadgets, right? He's probably brought you, oh, you know what? Uh, He's probably brought you like a coupon for some mixed martial arts lessons. I'd be careful going down this path as a parent because the thing Batman really wants is more Batmans running around. There's only one way to make a Batman, baby. (laughs) That's what (laughs) I'm saying. I I know what it is. (laughs) The first thought thought any new parent always has is, boy, I hope you don't do a Batman. (laughs) I would yeah. do. I just would love that. Be any other hero.
0: Here's one last question for uh, the McElroy brothers from my brother, my brother, and me. Every year for Christmas, for many years now, my aunt's main gift to me is a giant package of Ghirardelli peppermint bark. Ooh. When I was a kid, I loved it, I couldn't get enough of it. But this has been yeah. going on for years now. And unfortunately, my tastes have changed with age. I guess I had too much of a good thing because now I can't stand the sight of that peppermint bark. My problem is I don't know how to tell my aunt that I want different candy for Christmas. If she's going to buy me candy, I'd like to actually enjoy the gesture. Please help me, brothers, from Peppermint Bratty in Pittsburgh. Great name. You, you do know where candy is
5: sold, right? I mean, you're an adult, I'm assuming. You know where to go get it, get it yourself, I bet. That's not the problem, Justin. The problem is... It is the problem. (laughs) No, no, no. This is classic. This is a classic problem where a family member who doesn't know you well, or extended family member, thinks they locked on to something that they feel comfortable getting you for Christmas, for holidays, and that they believe you enjoy. And there's been an unspoken agreement between the two of you that you like it, and they haven't felt the need to push past that. Right, I think we can all agree that's an excellent summation of the question we all heard, for sure. Well, now the problem is, how do you then break that covenant? Because as soon as you say, hey, I think I might like some different candy this year, it will ripple back through your aunt's mind and what she will hear is, I've never liked this candy. It's all been a lie. Everything up till now has been hollow. And if that's the case, who knows what else, Aunt Vicky? hasn't been yeah. enjoyed by other people you know. I think you could do like a, I got struck by lightning this year, and when I got through the other side of that electric tunnel, mm-hmm. I liked different foods. I would sooner petition the Giardelli company to stop making
0: peppermint bark. That is like your only <laughs> ab- actual solution at this point. Justin, Travis, and Griffin McElroy... Always a joy to have you guys on the show. The podcast is My Brother, My Brother, and Me. They're also the hosts of The Adventure Zone. The 2022 Candle Nights streaming spectacular is available to watch now through January 2nd. We have a link to stream it on our website at MaximumFun.org. Justin, Travis, Griffin, thank you so much. Always nice to see you.
5: You too. Thank
0: you. Thanks, Jesse. Same, Same to you. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, my oldest child keeps switching what she wants for Christmas. The latest is a Dr. Pepper fridge, like a tiny fridge. She doesn't even drink Dr. Pepper. Uh, But my son is very consistent. He just wants more fish for his fish tank, not to eat. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJ W, the great Dan Wally. Our theme song is Huddle Formation, written and recorded by the Go Team, thanks to them and Memphis Industries for providing it to us. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, so go find us in those places. Uh, We share all our interviews there. If you heard something this week that you liked, share it with a friend. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
5: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed
0: by NPR.